Welcome to the Cloud Security Mindset Podcast, where we explore how interesting security professionals think, to learn how they succeed, handle failure, and respond to the disruptive forces facing security today. Hello, everyone. This is Rich Mogul, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Cloud Security Mindset Podcast. Joining me as uh, should be on most of these shows is Mr. Mike Rothman. Hey, Mike. Hello. And we also have our guest this week, Wendy Nather. And so we've known Wendy for a really long time. And we're really excited to get Wendy to be on the very first episode because she brings just... You say it a little bit too much, as over said, that somebody has a unique perspective, but I think it's pretty clear that Wendy actually has a a very unique perspective. And she's one of those people in security that if you follow her on Twitter, you read her writings and see her speak is just amazing at getting people to think a little bit differently. So Wendy, thanks for joining the show today. Thank you so much. That was a great intro. (laughs) So you know, Wendy, we met you first. You were working for the, is it the great nation of Texas or the great state of Texas? <laughs> the Republic of Texas. There you the go. Re- you know, well, republics are dangerous these days. So, <laughs> but that's the Star Wars geek in me talking. Yeah. Uh, no, that wasn't a political thing. It was a Star Wars comment. So give us a little bit of, uh, let's just keep this to less than five minutes here. How did you progress uh, your IT career. You ended up working for Texas, and then you moved on and worked at 451 as an analyst, and now you are over at Duo Security. So just lay out in a few minutes how that what that path was like for you. Well, I actually started out as a poor Unix admin. Then I worked in, uh, I was working for a, what later became a part of a Swiss bank and started working in security there. And then I came back to Texas and I was uh, working for a state agency. So I went from having a really, really big budget to having a really tiny budget. And that has really informed how I think about security all this time. After that, I helped to, uh, I I, uh, went to 451 Research, as you mentioned, and then I helped to stand up the retail and hospitality ISAC, and then finally came over to Duo, which has been acquired by Cisco. So here I am back at a big company again. Now, what's your role over at Duo these days? I know everybody sees you, you know, uh, on Twitter and speaking at conferences. Yeah, what do I do? I, I don't really know. We kind of made up this position. And, um, you know, when you come into a startup and there are a lot of smart people, you spend a lot of time trying to figure out what you can contribute that nobody else is already doing because you come up with an idea and you discover two other people are already doing it. So where I kind of ended up centering is in the fact that I was a former CISO and I could bring that perspective to Duo both internally and externally. So internally, I would help with everything from product roadmap to design, saying if I were a CISO, this is what I would want from this product, and doing sales enablement training and telling poor salespeople that, you know, security people are really good at spam filters, so they probably never saw your marketing email. Sorry. And then (laughs) um, externally speaking a lot, you know, helping to raise the profile of Duo, and Also, I think saying some of the things that CISOs can't get up and say on their own, that their companies won't let them say. Like, you know, this patching stuff really is hard. Don't tell us to just patch. You come over here and you try to just patch. So um, 
they uh, came to me after about a year of this and said, well, can you build a team to do it? And that's when I got some other really wonderful people to help me spread this uh, mission around, I guess. So, you know, if we think about your background, so very traditional Unix admin, uh, data center centric security. I remember the, you know, some of our first conversations were about some of the horror stories uh, with some of the data center issues that you were managing when you were still over at Texas. And then uh, obviously moving on to an ISAC, which is, you know, very, at the time in particular, traditionally focused. When did you start picking up on cloud and, and what keyed into your brain that made this different, that it was enough that it eventually even redirected your career path if we look at cloud and, and zero trust and all the, the changes in the environments? Well, um, it my exposure to cloud really started uh, when I was at the state agency and they decided to um, they decided to outsource the support and virtualize and move the contents of 27 state data centers into one centralized data center. And so they wanted just to, uh, rather than lifting and shifting, they wanted to image and virtualize and move everything over. And uh, I was not only dealing with that as someone running security uh, and dealing with the new outsourced support organization and all the security issues there, but then also helping to um, carry out the mission of figuring out how to move everything to the cloud. And I remember the, the first thing that I did when we handed over support to this external organization was I put in a ticket on the first day and said, I would like to meet with um, the, uh, the support people and explain to them what our security uh, plans are, you know, what our projects are and just get in sync with everybody. And it was kind of like doing a trace route. I wanted to see what would happen to that ticket. And it bounced around with so many organizations inside of this outsourcer and nobody could figure out who was supposed to answer it and do something about it. And after several months, they just closed the ticket and I never did get my meeting. So I tend to look at these things and say, okay, from a process standpoint, how is this gonna work now in this new world? And I found, which I think a lot of people figure out, that cloud is not just about the technology, it's about all the glue and the process and the people in between. It's about the support contracts. Um, you know, it, it's everything even outside of the technology itself. And that's where it tends to break down first. I don't know if that's something that you've encountered too. Yeah, I mean, definitely. In the early days, I think the first cloud presentation I ever gave, I said, you know, your cloud security comes down to your uh, service level agreements and the cloud provider's documentation. And anyone who's read cloud provider documentation knows that, that that's not what you want to hang your hat on. <laughs> right. But, but you know, you said something really interesting, and, and I want to key into it, which is, is this focus on the people and the process changes associated with this. Now, in the situation you just described, that wasn't really what we consider a kind of a, a cloud provider like Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. Now, I'm not going to ask right. you to name them, but it, it was. would you say that was more of like a data center consolidation? Were they using cloud technologies or were they just, you know, kind of lifting and shifting and rack and stacking in a new building? Um, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it was a data center consolidation 
using cloud technologies and virtualizing all of the servers. Um, but I think what kind of made it cloudy is they were trying to do this as a service for all of the different state agencies. And they were trying to figure out how to deal with all these different tenants. And they wanted to treat them all as one monolithic entity, you know, the state of Texas. But immediately you had different agencies coming in and saying, look, you know, we've got criminal justice data. You cannot mix us with anybody else. And you know, you've got FERPA data and HIPAA data. And um, I think the first thing they struggled with was, was the security implications of saying, we are not all one entity. You've got to keep us separate. And we want to know exactly how you're going to do that. And then there were ancillary things like um, us asking to put in our own security tools after they had consolidated things. And the service provider said, uh, yeah, no, we're, we're not going to let you install anything. So the only thing that I still had control over was the network. And so I had to buy network-based security tools to mitigate some of the additional risk that wasn't their responsibility. It was still mine but I couldn't actually use what I wanted to use. So I think from that aspect, that is kind of like working with an external cloud provider where you know, your ability to use things is kind of spread out in different layers. You can affect what you are doing at the top layer and the application layer, you know, what they let you use, and then you can control your network access to what you're using. But in between, there's all this stuff that, and all these layers that are out of your control. Right. So let's dig into that a little bit more, Wendy. When did you figure out that you were going to have to take different approaches, use different controls, uh, you know, in order to achieve your goals, right? Because first you, you know, you have a kit of stuff that you were using when you control the data center. Now you can't use that kit. And we all know it's state government budgeting and, you know, kind of the procurement cycle, it's not like you can snap your fingers and all of a sudden, you know, new kit shows up that, you know, is more applicable to the data center environment that you're in. So did you deal with, you know, months or maybe even years of not being able, not having the visibility that you would need? Uh, it was tough. And I had the advantage that I tended to hire former sysadmins as security people. And so they were embedded in a lot of places in the operations, even after the outsourcing, so that we could step in and do things. As an example, um, you mentioned state procurement processes, and between that and a very large outsourcer and everything else, um, just getting a new VM um, provisioned for us, we asked for an additional one, took nine months. Oof. I'm not kidding, nine months. And so it got to where I ended up having to take control of whatever was still left in our data center or, you know, that we still had root access to. And I, I guess I can tell the story now, maybe the, uh, the statute of limitations is over, but we were kind of running our own dark net in what was left of our data center to be able to do things like we wanted to be able to back up some of our uh, some of our VMs, and it was taking so long to go through the regular process that one of my people just said, "Look, I'm just going to set this up on on a server under my desk, and we'll I'll just do the backups. Just don't say anything. Yeah, don't tell anybody. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we we had to go kind of rogue 
Um, and let's be clear, this is not, you know, without naming names, this was not an unknown company. I mean, this is kind of a <laughs> sort of a brand name in this area. And uh, obviously, we already gave it away. It's not Amazon, Microsoft or Google, but this didn't end well, did it? It, it did not. And anybody who wants to do some OSN and, you know, does some Googling can figure it out because $800 million later, we terminated the contract. But I remember talking with you and with Mike about, you know, some of my issues talking with Chris Hoff, had a long discussion with him. And, you know, he pretty much said, um, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, it, it was one of these very difficult situations that um, nobody could figure out how to untangle because it was not the technology as such. Do you feel that that, did that sour you at all on Because I mean, you were friends with me and Mike and, and Chris. And of course, around that time is when Chris and I started talking a lot about cloud. Did this sour you on cloud concepts at all? Did it make you more wary? Or did you just kind of see the differences between the, the different kind of providers or where the world was headed? Well, I, I mean, I, I still refer to myself as a cloud survivor, but um, uh, it, it didn't turn me off of cloud at all. I mean, we, you know, we were all using, um, you know, regular SaaS applications uh, for both personal and business use, and they were working just fine. It's just that I had a very healthy respect for all of the things that can go wrong, uh, that can be left unspecified, that will trip you up. And that you just have to pay close attention to next time. So given that experience, now that you're working with CISOs around the world, really, you know, obviously, you know, kind of in charge of, of pretty important and, and kind of sprawling environments, when, when they start talking about cloud, what's their general perspective? I mean, is it, you know, oh, God, this cloud thing, you know, I mean, do they still look at it from from a fear based standpoint, or they're like, how do we take it best advantage of that? Um, you know, really, what we're trying to do is is get into the minds of the folks making a bunch of these decisions, uh, and, and really start to try to unpack uh, what it is that, you know, and how it is that they're, you know, coming to the conclusions that, that they draw. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, cloud has taken off, uh, slowly but surely, and I think it has worked especially well when companies are outsourcing their non-core, well-defined, well-understood business functions like email. Um, you know, Office 365 is such a big thing now, and everybody's moving to it. And uh, I haven't heard any, you know, serious problems with it. Uh, payroll has been around for decades uh, on an outsourced basis and, you know, using it as a SaaS now is fine. All sorts of things. Salesforce is huge. Um, so it's just the legacy stuff that is core to their business that even they can't figure out how to untangle that they feel most nervous about shifting to the cloud. And, you know, that's often the last to leave the building. But I, I see a lot of, you know, I talk to a lot of companies, both big and small. There are a lot of cloud forward companies that are just starting up and, and you know, they're perfectly happy just doing cloud forward work. Um, yeah, the ones that are, are legacy driven tend to be the most nervous about it. And it's very hard to reassure them because what are you going to do if there's a big problem? Are you going to give them service credits? because that's what we got. And it's like, oh, great, we're going to get service credit so we can get more of the same bad service. 
they're not impressed by that. They want to see that your the provider has as much skin in the game as they do. And I think that's the challenge for providers is proving that in a way that, you know, makes all the lawyers happy. So let's imagine that you go become a CISO again. And I know uh-huh. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no! I thought that might be your reaction on that one. You, you, you know, somebody just, they offer you the dream position, you come in, you have carte blanche, and you're facing the situation where you've got these legacy resources and you have to make that decision. So let's say there's a little bit of SaaS out there. Maybe they've been playing with Amazon or Azure or, or Google. Uh, what do you tell the, the CIO? What do you tell the board? How would you explain to them both what you should move, when you should move, or if you should do it at all? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, I, I, You can't hear the sweat beating on my brow right now, but it is. No, we can. You have a wonderful microphone. Oh, okay. Awesome. Um, it, it is It is really difficult. And um, I would almost say that instead of going the technical route and saying, you know, we're, we're just going to copy all these images and we're going to move them over into the cloud, to say, let's take this opportunity to deconstruct the business processes that you're using with the current legacy um, infrastructure, figure out if there are ways to optimize it in a way that that matches better with a provider already out there. In other words, you know, change what you're doing so that you can fit into what the provider is doing instead of expecting the provider to, you know, to change their ways. So if you were going to move something into Azure or, or into AWS, um, and I think you guys, you know, preach this a lot too, you know, let's re-engineer all the way up to the business layer to make it cloud native instead of trying to copy, you know, things over wholesale. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. It's that, that, that re-architect refactor as opposed to trying to go ahead and just move things up. Um, and obviously, we've been preaching that for a while. I mean, just just taking what you're doing today and moving it to the cloud isn't really always a benefit. Of course, not everybody always has the choice to do that because they are stuck in a situation like you were in Texas, where they're they're given a time frame and somebody decides the contract, and it's up to you to kind of make it work as best as possible. But l- yeah. let's really talk about the reality of the situation, right, Wendy? Very few folks come to the CISO and say, "Hey, you know, should we do this?" And you know, give you an opportunity to weigh in on a lot of those, you know, kind of procedural examples. I mean, I was with a client actually this week uh, and it was like, well, you know, these guys are going Azure, those guys are going AWS. And, you know, he kind of started to dig in on the Azure stuff. uh, And I said, well, why are they going to Azure? They're like, well, because they thought it was the thing they should be doing. Um, Was there a business need for that? Uh, Not that we know of. You get a lot of this, which is just, you know, folks feeling like they're being left behind by not moving a bunch of their stuff to the cloud. So again, a lot of the, a lot of what we're seeing is how do we start to retrofit some of the right policies, some of the right processes, a lot of the stuff you've been talking about on something that's already in flight with folks that, you know, don't necessarily understand what they should be doing. So does that kind of start to relay or, or um, bridge into into some of the work that you're doing with Zero Trust now? 
to the extent that I think zero trust is really about questioning a lot of this, uh, the fault assumptions you've been making all this time, then yes. Um, looking at the cloud and going, you know, do we really have to control this part or is there risk that we can just mitigate on our side and the provider can do whatever it is they're going to do? Or, um, you know, our assumptions about authentication. You know, we used to think this was enough and if you came from the right IP, then it was all good. Maybe we should layer some additional factors on top of that now. And if so, how can we do that, you know, based in the cloud? Did we have default assumptions on the security of things because they were in our data center? That is not necessarily the case anymore. Uh, should we stop trusting the OS layer? You know, things like that. So I think that's kind of how the two fit together. Yeah, I don't think those are bad questions, regardless of the situation of where your technology resides, right? You know, do I trust the operating system layer? Well, yeah. I mean, whether it's in my data center or somewhere else, that that's probably mm -hmm. a good question to ask. Yeah, or what would it take for me to trust the operating system layer? And the answer would might be different depending on whether you are employing the person who's actually laying hands on that operating system. This is actually starting to move into one of the areas I was, I was hoping we we're going to get to, which uh -huh. is your bread and butter. And, you know, if we look at these zero trust uh, concepts and it means a lot of things to, to different people. But one of the things I'm impressed with is, you know, if we look again at your background and where you are today, you are in kind of some people would call it a semi-evangelist role. You're, you're out there kind of sort of being a spokesperson. And Mike and I have seen a zillion of those. And these people bounce from company to company to company to topic to topic to topic. But it, it feels like you're an actual believer on this one. Like you're not there just for the paycheck. You're not there just to, uh, you're not the kind of person to put your reputation on the line just to sell out. I mean, that's what Mike and I do hey, for the hey record. There. So you hear this? Mm. <laughs> Tasty Kool-Aid. Got the Kool-Aid right here. You know, it's clear you care and you believe about this. And in particular, because you think, maybe I'm reading between the lines, but you feel that these approaches, and I'm not going to call it a technology, mm -hmm. but that these approaches can start helping us deal with some of these problems of scalability that we have just really struggled with historically in security and you know, in securing our users and our applications. So maybe we should start with, you know, what does zero trust mean to you? And how do you think about it and define it? Yeah, um, well, you know, going back to the early 2000s when the Jericho Forum started talking about this, I'm sorry, we have to end this podcast right now. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. You, you know, I still use Jericho in talks and just be like, anybody remember that? And everybody's like, no. I'm like, yeah, they were right. They were just about 10 years too early. So Yeah, you know, and, and, and the people from the Jericho Forum come up to me later and go, thank you for remembering <laughs> us. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody remembers them. But, you know, they described it as deperimeterization. And I remember thinking about that, reading about it as a CISO and going, you know, they're right, but I have no idea how I would make that work in, in reality. Um, but they described something called a collaboration-oriented architecture. And um, I love the word collaboration a lot better than I like zero trust. Sorry, John Kinderbach, but I, everybody likes the word collaboration better. Where you can say, look, what do we really need to control in security? And what, you know, can we leave in somebody else's hands because we have figured out how to mitigate that risk. So for example, if you are not managing devices, um, 
you know, we used to assume everything was okay if you were using corporate devices and therefore they were being managed. And that was a big assumption. Um, then you didn't have to examine them with every authentication and decide whether they were properly configured. But these days, because we have BYOD and people pushing so hard to use everything, why not pull back to your resource and say, look, you know, it's your device, do what you want. But if you want to access our resources, you have to meet our security requirements, which are these. You figure out how you want to do it. And, uh, you know, when you're ready, you can come in. So it's more collaborative. There is less control that, you know, honestly may not need to be there. And it does scale better because your users can go and update whenever they feel like it and uh, still meet your requirements. So um, I, I think that's a lot of it is a way of looking at what do we need to verify in order to trust on our side? Do we really need to control it to be able to trust it? And if not, you know, what, what kind of collaboration can we set up with people? And I think it's that part of zero trust that a lot of people miss, you know, miss the point of that this is really a lot about uh, more peer-to-peer -peer relationships rather than an authoritarian security model. Well, th that's the whole difference between enabling and preventing, mm -hmm. right? What you just, you, you, your view on zero trust, which is again, very interesting. And I, I hadn't seen a talk that you've done on that yet. So, so it's, it's really compelling to me uh, is, you, you know, kind of this idea of how do we enable new processes, knowing that we can start to add a layer of trust to what folks are doing, as opposed to everybody else saying, trust no one, verify everything, you know, kind of, we can't do this kind of stuff and, and, you know, block first, ask questions later, right? I mean, I think that's kind of how zero trust has been rolled out throughout the security industry. Yeah, it, it, it depends on who you talk to at any given time. I know there are a lot of CISOs who don't like the term zero trust. Either they feel it's a buzzword, which, you know, it kind of is, is um, or, or they just feel it's not the phrase that they want to bring to their management. Um, but I think there's a lot of room under that tent to figure out how you want to implement it and describe it. And in fact, I am going to be um, speaking on this uh, in my keynote at RSA and describing it as democratizing security, because I think that's ultimately where this is going. Part one of our interview with Wendy Nather is sponsored by DisruptOps. Go to www.disruptops.com for more information about cloud security automation. Join us next week for part two, where we delve deeper into the zero trust concepts, as well as how Wendy thinks about security.